Our text for today comes to us from Mark chapter 8, and I will read verses 22 through 37. Listen now for a word from God. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently at his, and his sight was restored. And the man saw everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man and the Messiah must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for today. Thank you for the gospel of Mark, for this season of Lent. God, thank you for this time to reflect on your word. God, I pray that whatever we hear this morning would come from you and not from me. Amen. A couple of housekeeping things. Um, the title of the sermon is entirely irrelevant this morning. So if you were expecting flames and fire and burning, I need to dispel that expectation right away. You've got to let go of that, okay? Uh, that, that, that's the first thing. The second thing is I didn't have as much time as I needed to practice, so this, this could be a longer one, all right? And I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time. I, if, we, if we start dipping into the 45 minutes, which I hope not, someone just raise your hand politely and, Pastor, you got to get out of here, yeah. Jack's tapping his wrist. It's, it's time to go, so keep me in check. I want to start with a story about Nintendo because I know we have a lot of video game enthusiasts in the house this morning. Um, 
Nintendo, sometime around the turn of the millennium, found itself in a heap of trouble. Um, For a long time, they had coasted off sales of the Super Nintendo and um, the video games that had come with it, and they'd enjoyed quite a lot of success, actually. Um, Not just from the console sales, but they had some offshoots that some of them didn't do so, so well, but they had Game Boys that were doing well. They were really on top of the video game world, but around the year 2000, 2001, 2002, Sony and Microsoft entered the market, and they brought out the PlayStation 2, particularly, Sony did, and then the Xbox. And those were selling like hotcakes, as they used to say. And uh, Nintendo, you know, for a while was still doing pretty well with some of its sales, but it didn't really have an answer to these very powerful computers that Sony and Microsoft were building. In fact, Nintendo found itself at a place at about 2010 where they're looking ahead into the future and and they're not doing that bad. They've got money in the bank, they've got some runway, but they don't have any answers after 10 years of being in this market. They don't have any answers at all for how they're going to make a comeback and produce a video game that sells the way they need it to sell, to recapture their market share, and take over the minds and imaginations of all the video game lovers in the world. So there's this board meeting that's held. All the Nintendo executives gather, and um, they're trying to figure out what are we going to do. And they're looking ahead saying, we might, you know, if 30 years from now, if we don't have an answer, uh, we're going to be done. We're going to be out of business. We need to start thinking right now, what can we do right now that will help us in 30 years? And maybe, maybe we can get back to where we were. One guy stands up, one of the executives, and he says, I got some bad news. We actually can't compete with Sony and Microsoft. We can't build the computers that they're building. We don't have the supply chain to do it. We don't have access to the resources. We don't have the human capital to do it. We don't have anything we need to do what we need to do to compete in this video game market. We're done. We can't do it. And it kind of gets silent in the room, and <laughs> everyone's mumbling, like, what, what is this guy? What is this guy saying? And he says, but I have an idea. What if we built the weakest computer we can possibly build for the cheapest price we could possibly build it? And we see where that goes. We see how that does for us. And we pick this very niche lane, and we just keep building those super weak computers, and we let these others, they do what they're going to do, but let's start to make a new way in the world and find a new path. And, you know, spoiler alert, but Nintendo sort of did make a big comeback, and currently they have, I think, three of the top five selling consoles of all time uh, of of any video game system ever. They they have three of the top five. One of them is the Nintendo Switch, which they're currently selling, which is a direct result from some of these board meetings that they were having about, you know, how they couldn't build these strong computers and letting go of these old ideas. But when I heard that story, what I was interested in was not the success of Nintendo, but was more how much energy did it take? How how much of an act of God did it take to convince an organization to let go 
of an old idea in the market that you had to have the biggest and best thing coming out to impress consumers. Because th this is how video games were made. You had, do you remember, I, I don't know how many of you played video games. I know this is a terrible analogy for some of you, but when, when the PlayStation 2 came out, I can remember getting it, and I remember thinking, it looks like real life. And if you look at it now, it looks like a bunch of potatoes on the screen, just kind of running around, you know? And, um, but th this is what impressed me, and I, I wanted the next one. I wanted the PS3 and the PS4, and I wanted all the Xbox. You wanted all of these because they were so great and so powerful. What kind of an act of God did it take to convince those executives, many of whom are high achievers and know everything in the world about everything and had been working at Nintendo for years and years and years and had all of this tradition and data to back them up, how much did it take to convince them to let go of all those old ideas and embark on a new journey? And I, I really do think it could only be an act of God in some ways. I'm not saying God endorses Nintendo at all. Though God might be partial to Nintendo if I, if I can weigh in. But I think the spirit kind of moved in that board meeting to get them to let go of that and take such a big risk. As people, we all cling to ideas we cling to things in our life. We cling to criticism. Some of y'all are thinking right now, something someone said to you so long ago that you can still remember. I can still remember most of the names of the people that called me Carrot Top growing up. <laughs> we cling to that. We hold on to it. Uh, so sometimes we cling to failures, to shames. That thing that you did so long ago that you're not very proud of, that you really don't want anyone to find out about still, you hold on to that. You carry it. We cling to family members. We cling to friendships. We cling to organizations. We cling to a lot of things. We hold on. We get our minds set on things. It's really, really hard to let go. In our text for today, Mark opens this sequence in the gospel with a story about the disciples walking into the town of Bethsaida. And Mark is a, a writer of few words, and so when he tells you something, you sort of want to pay attention because he likely means something by it. And um, I, I was thinking this week, what is he, why is he telling us they're, f they're going into this specific town? Because it what does it mean? Well, actually, this is where the disciples are from. Peter is from the town of Bethsaida. Andrew's from the town of Bethsaida. Philip, and then likely some others as well. So they're going to the place where the disciples are from, and immediately we're told that there are some people from the village that bring a blind man to Jesus, and they ask Jesus to heal this blind man. And what the writer is saying here, I think, is, is, is something like, he wants us to know, Mark wants us to know, that where the disciples are from, there are blind people. But not just there are blind people where the disciples are from. The disciples literally come from the place where people cannot see. The disciples come from a place where people are born with an inability to see. 
And Mark wants us to know this literally, but then also a little later metaphorically. And so Jesus goes into the town, and, and we're told that they, they bring the blind man to him, and they ask him, will you heal him? And the first thing Jesus does is he doesn't say, yes, I'll do it. He takes the man by the hand, and he leads him away from the town where there are people that do not see. He takes them from the place of blindness to a new place, and then he spits in his face. He spits in his face, and then he rubs his spit in his eyes, and then he lays his hands on him, and he asks the blind man, can you see? And the blind man says, I, I see what look like men walking, or excuse me, what look like trees walking. And then Jesus rubs his hands on his eyes once again, and the man's eyes are cleared, and he can see everything clearly. And Jesus says to the man, he says, don't go back to the village. Don't go back to the place where people can't see. Don't go back to the place where there is blindness. Go home. And then he and the disciples, they keep walking. And Mark is setting this up, I think, to, to tell us that Jesus has a certain kind of power to heal a certain kind of blindness in the world. There's, there's, a, there's a power Jesus has over, over the blindness of sight that, that Jesus has the ability to heal, and he's showing you that power through this story. But then, as we continue on, as the disciples go with Jesus to Caesarea Philippi, to the other villages, we're going to encounter a kind of blindness— this is a controversial take, that Jesus cannot heal. So they're walking from Caesarea Philippi, and they're going into another village, and, and Jesus asks his disciples the question, just making conversation, you know, who do people say that I am? And they speak up pretty quickly. They say, well, some people say that you're um, John the Baptist, resurrected, which would be kind of right because Jesus picked up the mantle of John the Baptist and was doing the things that John the Baptist did. And then uh, someone else chimed in and said, no, no, I haven't heard John the Baptist. I heard your Elijah come back from the dead, which, you know, might be kind of right because Jesus is sort of a great prophet and there's a lot of expectation around them and and then other of the disciples, they're, they're sort of naysayers. They're like, oh, we haven't heard John the Baptist or Elijah. That's a little too much. But we have heard, you're among one of the prophets, which is still a, a great, you know, great achievement, a great thing to say. And then Jesus pauses and says, no, 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 who, who do you say that I am? It gets really, really quiet. No one wants to answer, except for Peter, who comes from the place where people cannot see. But in a moment of clarity, he speaks up. Peter speaks up and says, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And the other disciples, you hear in the text, in the silence of the text, the other disciples don't disagree with that, which means they likely believe it. And Jesus doesn't disagree with it, which means he's sort of confessing it in a negative way without saying it. And he tells them, don't tell anyone about this. Don't say a word. And then he launches into this teaching about who the Messiah is. Now, this is a pretty significant moment because the disciples 
growing up in the religion they're growing up in, they have an expectation of who the Messiah is going to be, what the Messiah is going to do. And this Messiah is supposed to be this great warrior who comes quite literally with sword and shield and strikes down the Romans, strikes down the oppressors, strikes down whoever's sitting on the throne, and then takes that throne and then sets up all of his buddies and his friends and his people to rule over them. So the Messiah is the new oppressor that is supposed to come to town and hopefully will make everything right in the process. This is their expectation, that a warrior king will come and conquer the bad guys so that they can take over. And so Jesus, knowing this, launches into this teaching where he tells them, I'm going to be rejected by the scribes and by the chief priests. I'm going to be rejected by the religious authorities. And actually, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again after three days. And he's, he's telling them all of this, and then he tells them, you've got to give up your life. This is the way that it's going to have to go. And Peter, who comes from the place where people don't see, who's also just confessed that Jesus is Messiah, who has also just witnessed not just the miracle of the one man receiving his sight again, but all of the miracles that preceded it, Peter speaks up and interrupts Jesus as if Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about and says to him, no, you're wrong. That's not how it's going to go, Jesus. That's not how it's going to go, Jesus. You're, you're going to be a warrior king. You've got you've to strike down Rome. You've got to do all of this. He begins to tell Jesus what the Messiah is going to do. Because that's who Peter is. Because Peter is the kind of guy that comes from a place where people cannot see. And Jesus, watch this in the text, Jesus doesn't reach out to touch Peter's eyes or mind to try to heal this thing that he cannot see. Because Jesus knows he can't. And instead, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. Get out of here. I'm done with you. You don't have your mind on divine things. You have your mind set on human things. Go. And then he gathers the rest of the crowd of the disciples and those who had likely tagged on and were following, and he begins to teach them what it means to be a disciple. And part of what it means to be a disciple is that they have to let go of this old idea of who they think the Messiah is going to be. They have to let go of this God that they have imagined that is going to come and kill all of the people <laughs> that they want killed so that they can then rule. He's asking them to get rid of their imagination and download something new. And I can't imagine how difficult that would be. In fact, it, it's so difficult for Peter, in fact, that right after this, they're going to encounter the transfiguration, which Pastor Sarah talked about, where Jesus takes Peter up on a mountain, transfigures into the glory of God, shows him that he is God. Peter still can't let go of it because by the end of the gospel, when they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter knows this is the way and heard it's the way and still has seen that Jesus is God, takes a sword 
out of its sheath and cuts off Malchus's ear because he thinks the revolution has started and it's time to throw hands and it's time to shed some blood and it's time to do what he hopes God will do. Peter, from the place where people cannot see, cannot let go of this old religious idea. Eventually, I think he does, and, and we see that in the book of Acts, but at least for now, he can't let go of it, even with miracles. You know, the call to Peter is, is really the call to all of you, to me, to let go of some of those old ideas that are keeping us from life and life to the full, as Jesus says in John. Jesus wants Peter to let go of this idea because it's not going to get him anywhere. It's not going to lead a, to a fulfilling life. In fact, Peter's going to be kind of a one-man army trying to take on the most powerful army in the world, and, and it will kill him. It will literally take his life, but also if he doesn't let go of it, he's going to lose the life that he's been called to by Jesus. He's going to lose his discipleship in a way because he's going to go off on his own. And so Jesus' call to him is to let go of that, not because he needs Peter to do hard things and not because Jesus just wants him to sacrifice. Jesus' call to Peter to let go is about embracing a new kind of life. It's about taking on something else and letting go of those things that are holding him back. And that's the call to you. That's the call to me. Jesus asking us, to let go of the things that are not feeding us, that are not bringing us life, that are actually tearing us down. You know, I wondered if I, if I would share this story, and I think I sort of have to at this point. Um, one of the things I, I had to let go of that was just eating at me was um, when I was in undergrad, when I was in college, I went to a private liberal arts school that was a very, very religious. So religious, in fact, we had chapel five days a week, and you were expected to go to church on Sunday. That means that, that Saturday really was like a Sabbath from church and from work and from everything. We couldn't gamble, we couldn't drink, we couldn't dance, uh, you couldn't have someone of the opposite sex in your dorm rooms. I mean, it was very, very strict. And they, and they actually, um, they made sure you went to your classes in chapel by scanning you in. Everyone had like an ID, you know, and uh, it, was sort of, uh, it was sort of Orwellian in a way, uh, kind of 1984-ish, but um, when I was, I wasn't uh, necessarily the most religious kid when I was there. It may surprise you that I'm a pastor now. Um, but I one time went to a party, partook of marijuana when I should not have. And um, someone from the party who was also there told on me. And when the dean of students and student behavior uh, called me into the office and asked me if I did it, I said yes. And then they kicked me out of school for uh, a semester. And then to get back in, I had to reapply, and I had to do all these things. This is when I was, I was 20, 21 years old. And um, I've never, I've, one, I've never shared that publicly. Two, 
I carried that shame with me for probably 10 years after. 10 years, I'm going through seminary and I still don't want people to know that I did this, even though, you know, sort of everyone had lived life at that point in seminary. You don't want to let go of those shames and those failures, and I, and I don't know why, but I just, I held on to it and I clung to it. That was something that was keeping me from life. And now it doesn't have any power over me. I don't care if people know. I don't care what they say. Maybe you have something like that that you'd like to let go of. There was another moment recently uh, on Ash Wednesday, those of you that were able to attend, you, you, may have, you may have actually seen this moment. I was up here um, imposing ashes upon anyone that would come up. And um, that we went through the line. It's always an emotional service for me because it's very intimate. And it's very hard to look at people you love and say, <laughs> you're dust, and to dust you shall return, you know. And um, I, I, was, I was sort of emotional, but holding it together, being very professional, like a, like a good pastor. And then Naima and Sarah <laughs> showed up. And um, whew. Sarah came first, and I, I actually got through... <laughs> I got through giving Sarah ashes pretty easily. <laughs> my my voice didn't crack that much. I think I had some tears streaming. But <laughs> I marked her. I was able to say it. And then Naima was there. And I wouldn't speak the words. I started to speak them, and I wouldn't. It wasn't that I couldn't. I refused. And I was sort of having this, like, argument with God in the moment. I was like, not to my baby. No. Someone else wants to do it. That's fine. I don't care if it's my job. I don't care if it's my duty. I will not speak that. I was, I was holding on. I still, I'm still holding on to it right now. And I, I want to let it go, but I, it's hard. I don't even want to imagine it. We cling to our shames. We cling to our loves. We cling to ideas that we have about the world and how the world should be. And we don't just do it as individuals. We do it as a group. We do it in the church. An old sanctuary like this should never, ever look any different than it looked before. And here I am standing in a pit, you know. <laughs> you all let go of that. We should have a youth group like we used to have way back in the day. I was told when we first came here we shouldn't do passing the peace, and now it's like the thing we have to like separate you all. We have to like go back to your seats. Come on, come on. We were told you would never do that, but actually you, you seem to love it. We do it in the church. We do it in our family life. We do it all the time. So many of these things that we're clinging to keep us from the life and the call that Jesus has for us. And my question for us this morning is, what are those things that you're clinging to that you need to let go of? What are those things you need to ask God and say, God, can you please take this from me? Help me let go. Let's pray.
Good and loving God, thank you for your word and for today. God, help us to think of the things we're clinging to. And God, more importantly, help us let go. Amen.